You're listening to the Beaver Tales podcast, where I interview former Oregon State student athletes and coaches to talk about their time in Corvallis, what made their career special, and what they're passionate about now. A very special episode today with a coaching legend from Oregon State. Here's a teaser of what's to come. I had a basic philosophy that you're always tougher on the best player. You don't look for someone that you're going to beat up on that's not a part of the nucleus. Because I tell the players early, if I can't develop at least a nucleus, which would be six or seven of you, to really buy into what we're selling, then we got a chemistry problem. That whole conversation coming up in just a moment. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for a word on a fantastic charity you can support. I talk with Jack Riley today on this episode. I hope you caught the last episode with his daughter, Pam Airy, an Oregon State tennis player. A lot of her stories perfectly lead into the questions I'll ask Jack. It worked out great because I talked with them in the same afternoon. So a lot of fun to catch up with Jack about his coaching strategy, how he developed as a person and a coach, his thoughts on the amazing things Pat Casey he did to lead the program after Jack Riley's tenure with Oregon State. Also, just a little context on one part of the conversation. We make a parallel between 1994, when Oregon State did not make the postseason, Washington got in ahead of the Beavers. That was Jack Riley's final year. And a parallel to 2016, when Oregon State probably should have made the NCAA tournament some controversy with Washington getting in ahead of Oregon State and a whole lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. And Jack Riley will recount those stories and a whole lot more about the College World Series and amazing things that he did in Corvallis. Thanks for tuning in, everybody, to this episode with Oregon State Hall of Famer Jack Riley. Well, let me give you a little intro. Okay. Okay. So for 22 years, Mr. Jack Riley was uh, OSU's baseball coach leading up to the 1995 season when Pat Casey followed him up. Jack was a five-time Coach of the Year, a Hall of Famer at two different schools, both Linfield University, where he was a baseball and basketball star, and Oregon State, where he got inducted in 2015. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for talking today. You bet, Josh. It's a real privilege to talk to you. Tell me about when you got hired at Oregon State. A 22-year career, tell me about the very beginning and what it was like, the conference, the school, and the beginning for you. Yeah, very interesting because it's a part of my hiring that uh, changed real quickly. I was hired in 1972 to take the job from uh, that Gene Tanselli had held for seven years. And basically, it was a time that the Pac-8 was a full scheduled league, mm. the South. Southern Cal, Arizona, Arizona State weren't in yet. And so we had four in the South, four in the North. Well, it happened in January after uh, fall ball and, and practice in the field house, there happened to be a huge gas shortage, shortage mm -hmm. at that time, 1972. And the lines and the gas and everything, well, lo and behold, they decided that they couldn't afford to travel and so forth, so they cut it to the north and south. Mm -hmm. So I've always wondered about that part because, you know, we struggled a lot in the north because of the weather. And during that time period, uh, after it went to the north, there were no, like today, they all play the same amount of games. They all play... Uh, uh, start the same date, but not then. Mm. We'd go south spring break, and they'd played anywhere from 25 to 30 games. So it was basically uh, a problem for the administration because they decided to fund us regionally. Mm. So we didn't get uh, too good of funding, but basically the job that I thought I was hired for wasn't really what I came into. And so uh, from that point on, uh, different things uh, developed. The football program had not, uh, I think, the f from 1972 to 1994, every year was a losing season. <laughs> so money was tight. 
the support for football. Ralph Miller's basketball program later on carried a lot of the load, but uh, things were tough. Then Title IX came along and the cuts started. And that was at a point in time when they did actually cut baseball. And I thought I had lost my job and we had a big meeting with Dr. McVicker and I really kind of lost it in a meeting because I got up and really fought it. I told him he didn't understand a competitor, he didn't understand what it meant to lose this, and that uh, uh, I, I couldn't even tell you what I said, but people said that I really let it out. And at that time I went back to my office and I was in with uh, Paul Valenti at mm -hmm. that time and I looked up after about 15 minutes and there was Dr. Robert McVicker. And he looked and he said, don't feel bad about that. I respect what you just did. And that kind of fired me up a little bit because I knew I wasn't going to get fired. <laughs> <laughs> but from that point on, uh, it did get cut. But the alumni came to fight for it and we got it back. And that was the first time it was cut because it was cut a second time later on when they cut both wrestling, Dale Thomas, and baseball. And they just couldn't afford the Title IX uh, programs and so forth, but they couldn't get enough meat out of the so-called uh, Olympic sports or non-income sports, whatever you want to call them. And so it was a real struggle with uh, the scholarship monies that we had and so forth. So that was a time that was pretty, pretty trying financially, and there's a lot of things we had to do. Right. When I was just talking with your daughter about an hour ago, we talked about that particular thing of what it took to keep the baseball program afloat and, and her being a tennis player. It was an interesting dynamic for you, knowing that the other sports at Oregon State that could also be on the chopping block, she was a player on, on one of those sports. So how did you handle that? Well, competitively, <laughs> I thought that basically if we were going to make the California trip and go down and play because... At those po point in time, you played the smaller schools a lot more. Now you can't because of the R RPIs and all of that. You, you get graded down if you play Division Two or, or just smaller schools, yeah. basically. So you, you, couldn't, you couldn't do that. But uh, it, was a, it was a tough time. We uh, played... Uh, you know, to small crowds, it was just very discouraging because mm. nobody really cared about the sport at that point in time. Mm. And so with the cuts, it was, it was a tough go, but we did do stuff to raise money to go on those trips south. Mm. And we started uh, with the blessing of the, the late Larry Herring of the Gables. Uh, we uh, had a coupon book for restaurants where whoever sold them got half of what uh, the value of it was. And I believe the booklet sold for $30. So the, the, the person that sold it got 15 The baseball program got 15 And we sold a lot of them. And then we cleaned the stadiums. And so we had to work to get our money and then donations at that time because you could earmark the foundation to a sport. Hmm. Later on, they stopped that because they didn't like the competition within each other fighting for funds from, from boosters. Hmm. But w we did get uh, a fair amount of uh, back backing from boosters to travel and so forth. But that's how we made it through hmm. that time. Hmm. It was, yeah, it's a crazy concept to think of a program that went on to win three national championships, mm -hmm. not only got close to being cut, but did get cut, never missed a season, but basically got decided to get cut and then brought back before missing any time. What, what specific memories do you have of 
uh, you know, how, how you did make it work. You kind of just brought up cleaning the stadium and that yeah. sort of thing. What were you kind of doing season after season to keep it afloat? Well, it, it, it basically was a struggle, although we did manage a few Northern Division championships, and it was, it was so unfair with the South because no matter how much we won, and you got to re- realize that at that point in time, there were only 32 teams that could get a bid mm-hmm. to the playoffs. Now it's 64. Yeah. It was 32 at that time. In the meantime, they had gotten the Arizona and Arizona State in the in the South, and they just vote us down on anything. So if we won in the North, we'd have to go to the South every year to play a three-game series with whoever won it down there, which was really tough. But the closer it came into the 80s, and in 83 and 84, we started to make some inroads, and we did get a, a huge break financially from the Earl Childs Foundation because I was having a little bit of a riff with DeAndros about the funding because they did a big story because we had won the Northern Division and had won a bid and had gone to the regionals on three and a half scholarships. And so he did a story, I think it was Ed Whalen, an old KGWS sports announcer, Mm -hmm. came down and interviewed and uh, he put it on the air and Earl Childs saw it. So we had gotten a a pretty substantial amount for about six years, almost close to a half a million dollars from Earl Childs Foundation. And we started to be able to recruit some pretty good players. And so through the 80s and so forth, we, we were winning and going to some regionals and so forth. And so that was a break. It was uh, uh, the first financial backing we'd ever gotten, and it wasn't even close. I think we, the most we ever had was seven and a half in-state scholarships. Like Washington had seven scholarships, but they were out of state and each scholarship out of state is three times of what an in-state. So mm-hmm. uh, Bob McDonald, who's a close friend from Washington, we always used to kibitz about that. You tell me you only had seven scholarships, and they were all out-of-state scholarships. But <laughs> anyway, it, 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 it was a fight. It was a battle to, uh, to try to stay there because everything was basically concern about football, which it rightly so. You can't have a good athletic department without a strong football program, you know. And, and I understood that, but still, D. Andrus would always say, oh, he's doing a great job with a program that's working on a shoestring budget. And I'd always wanted one of that shoestring was going to get get stronger but anyway that was part of what we went through to keep it going and then in 83 when Oregon which very successful never had a losing season in baseball history till about 1982 when they defunded them and I always thought that when they dropped baseball at Oregon the, the, the inklings I heard was that Oregon was a track school. We had grown and kept our baseball program viable, so they chose track, we dropped track. We chose baseball and and they had their track and we didn't have track during that time in 83 on up. Speaking of the the difficulty of getting into the postseason, perhaps a little bit of bias against teams in the Pacific Northwest, this one actually includes two programs in the Pacific Northwest. What do you recall about 1994, Washington, and that story of... Oh, yeah, that's not a... We didn't get the administrative support from Oregon State because we won the conference. But Washington State had done some illegal stuff and they were basically in trouble with the league they we were only a five-team league that year and you have to have six teams to be counted as a league so we win the the league by two games but Washington gets the bid because their administration battled for it and the politics of it all came and it happens a lot 
in all of the sports where you see, well, how'd that team get a bid? Their record wasn't as good. Well, it was a little bit of that situation where we just didn't get the support from our administration. And it was very disheartening, and uh, I let our administration know that it was their fault. And uh, I won't mention the athletic director at that time, but we had some battles. Do you see any parallels of what happened in 1994 to 2016 when Washington got in with Lindsey Meggs and the NCAA Advisory Committee and Oregon State didn't even get into a regional. Same problem. Exactly. (laughs) We had a Lindsey Meggs at California, Uh and he had some influence with, I can't think of her name now, but they picked Washington over us because of the the Lindsey Meggs. It happens to be that it's two Washington people that Mm. screwed Oregon State. Mm. And so, yeah, that's the same thing that happened to us, happened to them. And it was Washington that got in in 94 over Oregon State, right? Yeah. Same. And they did well. They they had a World Series bid locked up. All they had to do was win one of the last two. And they they played a Georgia Tech team that had Jason Veritek Mm -hmm. and uh, and, uh, uh, Carr the shortstop, the really good shortstop for Boston for years. And they came back and won two games and went to the World Series. Nomar Garcia-Para? Nomar was their shortstop. My favorite player growing yes, up. Yes, Nomar. Yes. Wow. It was at Georgia, and Washington was there. And they're their second-place team in the yeah. old North, uh, the Pacific the right. Conference. Wow. Do you think Pat did put any I don't say I don't know, blame like did he was he personally mad at Washington because of oh yes the, the, I don't think it's any secret that uh, there's not a lot of respect for the Washington uh, baseball program because of what what they did to Pat because even the success that he had had at Oregon State up to that point should have warranted the fact that if there was going to be a break, it would have been Oregon State and not Washington. A different time and a different level, it was the same situation that I went through, that Pat went through. We've talked, obviously, how difficult it was at times with administration. Who were, what were the, the good moments, the administrators or fellow coaches that you gained a tremendous amount of respect for, that worked well with the people that you really liked working with at Oregon State? Oh, I'd have to go down to the trainers and uh, the equipment managers (laughs) and uh, so forth because uh, nobody in administration gave uh, baseball a second breath. And this is one thing I had told Pat later that Mitch Barnhart was a blessing for all the non-income sports. He wasn't a real, what you'd call interested sports figure he he was good in all the other aspects of fundraising and marketing and all that but he cared he went to them all and he raised baseball's budget and of course then in what year 99 or something they went to the full pack 10 at that point in time if they got funded to the 11.7, which still isn't enough yeah. scholarship money. And that's but still what it is today, right? Still is what it is today. <laughs> Gosh. And, of course, one thing I, that I never mentioned is that I basically never had an assistant coach until we raised funds for my assistant, Del Kerber, mm. and he lived with a booster. He was single, and he lived with a booster to do his uh, room and board and stuff and took care of an elderly booster to be a baseball coach. And then later on, we always used graduate assistants, but I look at their their basic uh, program now and they have 17 people on their staff. (laughs) And uh, it's just a different time. Everything changes and, and I'm so proud of what they had done against the South because mm. competed as hard as I could against those guys because they showed us no respect, no respect in any way. Remember Rod Dato, the great USC coach, said, do they play baseball anywhere north of uh, Berkeley? And uh, that's they believed that strongly. And 
the days that uh, USC had to come up here and we beat them in regionals and the things that Pat, the 11-12 game winning streak against Stanford who the, we had and Pat also had a lot of uh, little intricacies against the, their coach and their program with their high and, uh, high and mighty attitude towards everything. Mm. And so the things that Pat did accomplish uh, with the Southern schools. And of course, they didn't like coming north. And then we end up having all field turfs where the, you can play unless it, there's a thunderstorm going. You just play. the uh, And of course, they didn't want to come up and be cold and wet. And so that the shoe turned. They had to endure like we had to endure in the old days. I'm curious about your coaching strategy or demeanor one of the things that i've talked with about players who played for mm -hmm. pat was there's a spectrum of coaches who are who are harsh more the the aggressive type that get in your face Good get question. after you to uh, uh they, they lay yeah. back they're more you know mellow yeah. pat more naturally is on the aggressive side although yes. he definitely became and, and learned how to and, and is good at yeah. at subtracting what about you where do you place yourself well, on i don't know what you've heard but that was <laughs> i was pretty demanding i'd like to get to know my players so that i waited for him to screw up so that now and then we could have a chat and eyeball to eyeball really get into some things in uh I, I call it the humanistic approach to coaching because I loved that part of it and I loved working with their minds and trying to develop that. But it, it is a situation where you do push. You learn to who you can push and who you can't. But I had a basic philosophy that you're always tougher on the best player. You don't look for someone that you're going to beat up on that's not a part of the uh, of the nucleus mm. because I tell the players early if I can't develop at least a nucleus which would be six or seven of you to really buy into what we're selling then we got a chemistry problem mm. and so we worked along those lines and and that's a lot of Pat's success, too, because he, he did it mentally. He did it with the strike zone, which you have. The strike zone is baseball, whether it's a hitter or a pitcher. You better be able to know the strike zone. So if pitchers can't throw strikes on 3-1 and one and 2-0 and oh and throw uh, a number of pitches on 3-1 and one and 2-0, and oh, they're not going to be successful. And it takes a lot of courage and a lot of practice. We'd freeze counts in the field house and, th and see who could handle it. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I, I laugh a little bit because uh, a player that a lot of people didn't know played baseball at Oregon State was Newt Bueller, mm -hmm. who is, ran for governor, ran for secretary yeah. of state, was the only Rhodes Scholar in the history of Oregon State, a brilliant doctor as mm. it is now. And I had him in for a meeting after the season and one time and my assistant Dale Kerber and I are sitting there and we critique each other or critique him and he looks up and he says, now I understand that this critiquing at the end of the year, but what about players critiquing the coaches? Okay. And I said, have at it. <laughs> His question was, why do you put so much pressure on the pitchers to throw strikes? Mm -hmm. I said, Newt, you said the wrong thing. <laughs> because if I bother you with my pressure on learning to throw strikes, which he had a hard time doing, and he, he, he was a really good teammate, and he did pitch some, but he wasn't a top-notch pitcher. But if he had problems with that, then he wasn't getting the message. Mm. And so kind of that was the only question. Mm. Because Pat does a great job teaching the strike zone. I mean, I was amazed at Jacoby Ellsbury when he came in as a freshman in his first six to seven games. He's swinging at pitches that I can't, you just don't believe a kid would be swinging. 
it wasn't until about the 10th game, his strike zone got better and better and better. And that was because of Pat. And he does not like beating himself. And he has the ability to get that message with a little pressure <laughs> that you've got to take care of the strike zone. Yeah. Because the game starts there. Right. You can go all the way through the game of baseball, clear down to first and thirds, hidden ball tricks and everything, that you don't do them as much as you do the strike zone. Mm -hmm. And that was, I learned that from Ralph Miller mm. early in my career, watching him because he did things at practice that just amazed me. Simplicity. He had four drills that taught everything about the game of basketball that he needed. Talk to Paul Miller, and if you ever want to do a podcast on Ralph Miller, I can help you, because Paul Miller and some of those guys uh, I know well enough to know how they thought of it. Bored to death, but knew, because Ralph, if you didn't get it done in practice, you'd sit on the bench right next to him in practice. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because the simplicity of any game and skills are the same thing. You know, you eliminate wasted motion, you learn to develop skills. And this was Ralph Miller in a kind of a nutshell. Yeah. It's amazing already. I can tell that you learn from a variety of sources and Ralph was not, wasn't a baseball coach, but you learned from him. Yeah. And yeah. Pat, one thing Pat, I've heard him say, or players say about him is that he knew he didn't have a monopoly on wisdom. And it seems yeah. like you knew that. You knew that also. Yeah. No, yeah, it takes a lot of depth to cover everything. I just wanted to get to know my players because really the difference after Pat's success in my era was that I had to coach and develop players they recruited and managed players with organization and discipline, but the skill level was totally different. So we had to break down and teach muscle memory on skills. And, and, and there was an aura when we went south that because we were from Oregon and they were from Southern California, they had an advantage and it drove me nuts because I knew it and I couldn't get it across because there's no way the players would understand that until later on when all these Northwest players are crushing Southern California guys because the talent has always been up here. And I've had some very talented young players that really felt the pressure uh, and I saw it and it, and it bugged me. <laughs> Do you remember the moment where in, in 1994, I guess it would have been that spring, where you decided after 22 years that that, that was going to be your last year? Do you, do you remember making that decision? The year had a lot to do uh, uh, with it. I think 35 years was that year of coaching. I started in... 1960 at Jefferson High School, and this was 1995, so that's 35 years. Yeah. I spent seven at Jefferson, five at Lower Columbia, mm -hmm. and 22 or three, because I really stayed on till 95. Mm -hmm. I didn't coach that year, but, but 35 was enough. Uh, administration, the kids, I, I, to this day, I love dealing with, with, with the mind of young people because mm. I'd tell them, and you could probably go through as young as you are with, with your life, and I would, uh, a conscience doesn't develop until you really feel that there's a step in life you've got to take that's unbeknownst to you, mm. like I'm graduating, what am I doing next year? Mm. And not that many guys are going to play pro baseball. And so trying to, to work with people there, I tell them that life experiences in college are as important as classes and books because the networking, the people you meet, the friends you make are people that you're going to deal with in a lifetime. And 
the discipline of learning in, in, with your grades and stuff is what education's all about, but you just have a, a lot to learn, and during that time, you can't look totally. I've had some, I've had engineers and stuff that knew right now what they were going to do. I had a heck of a uh, player. He played with Dale Murphy at Wilson High School. Uh, Gail Meyer was his name. And he absolutely was a pro prospect, but was going to be an engineer at Boeing. And he he knew what he wanted. Well, they don't come along that <laughs> much because they they change and so forth. Right. And you can look back a yeah. little bit about about that. So it, it's understanding who you're dealing with and and what you want to see. And and once you see somebody do something that's special. You know it's in there, mm -hmm. and sometimes it's hard to unlock it. Mm -hmm. But that's the challenge. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a lot of what you know. this podcast is about, is talking with people when they transition. When you were not so-and-so, the baseball player, the basketball player, who were you? What was your identity? What, as, you know, that sort of thing can be a big question. As a person, as, as a, person. a human being. Right? Yeah. When you finish in 94, I know you played at least – at least a small role in Pat Casey following you up, mm -hmm. maybe a big role. How did he become the coach in it, and what role did you play in that? Well, it's interesting because there there was a search committee mm -hmm. and a couple of close friends, Donnie Worth, who was the alumni director at that time, and, 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 and several other people that I knew well. I'll say it, Dutch Bachman didn't give a damn about baseball, mm -hmm. and he was the AD at that time. Mm -hmm. And he didn't care what happened to baseball. And I had found out because our relationship definitely was strained because of I was a threat to him. And he, he, he didn't appreciate that because I was protecting baseball. Mm. He didn't give a dang about baseball. And so he was just going to stay status quo with baseball. Dutch Bachman is basically the one that let us down on the Washington situation. Okay. He did nothing. He didn't care about uh, a lot of different things. Gotcha. So uh, they had basically four or five finalists. And I had played Pat's teams at George Fox, and I'd watched, and he... Yeah, you know, he was a hard-nosed Irishman. I knew that, <laughs> and 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 he was by far my favorite. Yeah. He was my favorite. So I called the committee, and basically told them what Dutch was going to do. He was going to stay status quo. He didn't even care about what was really going on, and of course they knew Pat was the best uh, in in their deliberations. And Dutch isn't going to hire Pat. And so they called Dutch, and of course he wormed and squirmed around and said, oh no, I wasn't going to do that, I wasn't uh, going to, well we have a recommendation, are you going to take it? Mm -hmm. I mean, they put the pressure on him, and the recommendation was Pat. Mm -hmm. And Pat knows this, he knows this, he knows the fight that, that went on because it's political, just like Mitch's, Coinart's uh, uh, hiring was pretty, pretty political. But uh, anyway, so that's how Pat was basically uh, hired. Mm. And there wasn't any doubt. But I knew the Ralph Miller theory. It was going to take, take him time because it's... it's Division one baseball, it's Division one basketball. It doesn't matter. It's at a higher level. The players can be players that can play in junior college. I've told a lot of them, well, I don't know if I can play at Oregon State. I mean, the baseball doesn't care. <laughs> and I think you can, you know. And, mm -hmm. and so then you see how they react and go from there. 
A quick interruption on this episode to let you know about a special project I think you'll enjoy, the Beaver Tales documentaries, including exclusive audio interviews, narration, and retelling what made the 2018 Beaver baseball postseason so special. Every single game Oregon State would play in Omaha, two or three really weird things that maybe I'd never seen before would always happen. When he hit the home run, out of my coaching career, that's without a doubt the most exciting thing I've ever been a part of. This audio documentary series will come out in a few months. To subscribe, there's a link in this episode's description. Check out the website and put your email down there so you can be one of the first people to listen to the Beaver Tales documentaries. All right, back to this episode. When you compare what you went through of cleaning the stadium and fighting for the program to stay afloat and not having an assistant coach, and when you did have one, he was living with a booster to save money, to compare that to watching that Oregon State program with the guy that you wanted to be coach winning three national championships. Do you remember watching in, in, 2000, in 2006, especially since that was the first mm-hmm. one, do you remember that national championship and, and what that made you feel, your, your reaction? Well, uh, you know, I wasn't physically that close to everything, but mentally, and I learned this again from Ralph Miller, because Ralph Miller never came to a baseball game, but he knew everything about me as a coach. Mm. And of course, uh, uh, I learned that through some of his assistants and so forth, that he listened to all the games on the radio and stuff. And I, at one time I said, Ralph, you know, I go down to Oregon and Rich Brooks is out watching the game. I go up to Washington State, uh, George Raveling's out watching the game. What, can I get you out of the game? He says, Jack, smoking a cigarette. He says, I'm not coming out to any effing game and sit there in the cold and wet. <laughs> and so that was Ralph. That's Ralph. That's Ralph. And so that's kind of the situation there because I just didn't feel that I wanted to... I'd gone over there for 22, three years, and I did have deep feelings of distrust in the administration, and I had uh, not uh, been involved with Oregon State physically like probably I would have been if I wouldn't have been treated kind of like, but I understand that football was a disaster during that time period, but but uh, to sit and watch, to answer your question, what Pat did is amazing. It's an amazing feat, and he could easily be the coach of the century because of three national, Florida State. I know the head coach there well. I was on the rules committee with him and so forth. 28 regionals, no national titles. Yeah. And look at the great schools that have no national titles, and uh, three. And so there's a reason why, and basically it's Pat, his ability, and it's going to take some time to rebuild it. I mean, it it is uh, because that's the way life is. No two people are alike. Do you remember any things about 2018, any of the players that you maybe appreciate their story, watching those? my wife is, is of course, she, in 35 years of coaching, she missed one game of any game I ever coached. Really? And that's dragging the three children around everywhere and yeah. going everywhere. And, and they call her the matriarch still of OSU baseball. She mm-hmm. never misses a game. <laughs> and she can't get Pat even to give her the signals because she's always knowing the signals because he has a real deal about anybody knowing his signals yeah and so that's that's another little <laughs> thing on pat but uh uh where were we on that uh memory 2018 and oh yeah. yeah and so she she had four or five of them joey and tyler malone mm-hmm. and grant the big pitcher Brown, and yeah. uh zaleski yeah they all came over every wednesday night and sat in there for dinner really so I'd hear, you know, what was going on, especially in uh, 2019 okay. when things broke down a little bit and yeah. there were some problems. And 
And uh, I said, now wait a minute, you guys, don't be talking too much about the coach. You got an old coach sitting here. <laughs> you know? But uh, yeah, I I I, I knew uh, knew quite a few of them. Adley, I I knew. Of course, I was very close with his grandpa mm. and uh, his dad. Yeah. I even played uh, old man baseball with his. I was the old man. I, <laughs> I played after I retired, and I was at the ripe old age of 56, and my son was playing uh, uh, on a team that was uh, it was called, uh, what the heck was it, Twin Cities anyway. We played in Arizona every year, mm. and it was all my ex-players. Mm. And boy... I got it back a little bit, but it was fun. It was kind of a novelty and played a little bit. Couldn't see the ball in the high sky in Arizona, so I moved to first base. And and uh, then there, uh, one time there was a big pop-up, and my son was playing second base, and I was saying, I, I got it, but I don't know where I the ball mixes. You don't see it, Dad. Get out of the way. So then I went to DH, <laughs> but but uh, I did get to play, and we we played in tournaments uh, in uh, in Arizona at the parks there, and it was fun playing with all my ex players, Pete Rowe, <laughs> Jeff Doyle, some of the really good ones. Yeah. And, but yeah, it's uh, retirement has gone fast. <laughs> Where did you watch those games on TV? Twenty. I always watched this. Arizona stuff, and I pretty much could get an idea what mm. was going on and how it how it would determine because of all the little intricacies that we've kind of talked about in the discipline and 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 I knew a Pat Casey coach team could be very successful that particular year because of what I saw and I watched games on TV. It was hard for a long time to go over there uh, to home games. Mm. But uh, the last few years, I've gone to quite a few uh, home games mm. and getting to know some of, the, some of the kids and stuff because baseball's tough if you're not involved and you don't know somebody that's playing. Mm. And, of course, the depth of baseball m makes it tougher to watch when and that's the way with anything you get a doctor that walks watches a doctor show on tv that ain't what's happening <laughs> yeah, it's not real <laughs> it's not real yeah. and so the, the biggest thing that bugs me is uh is ball one ball two foul ball ball three foul ball strike three i mean just just uh the at bats we are in the fall uh, practiced uh, in our in our scrimmages and stuff had uh, three balls and two strikes mm. to just speed things up and it, it really did mm. it, re it, it really did but the history of the game just uh, doesn't allow <laughs> those kind of things right the National League just now has got a designated hitter. <laughs> yeah to go back to just coaching strategy coaching demeanor maybe it's almost easier for you to talk about pat than sometimes talking about yourself or pat talking about himself if you compare how pat coached at the beginning of his career to the end from 95 to 2018 how different was he how did he change as a coach well the big change is when he really realized pitching and mm. and defense won mm. and then his ability and, and intricacies that he used to have the discipline of his players yeah. was the biggest thing and he had I've always felt and this is the thing that's changed so much because young people don't like to feel the pressure of a little fear coming from someone uh, older and the only way I could feel is to get to know the player and talk straight across to him in in situations that you need to ask him questions for and then listen to what he had to say and then interact about that mm. and that's that's the way and i and i think pat did that i i i would be very surprised if he didn't and we both took losing very hard because i never liked to use the win, the word win i used to prepare to mm. play the best you can play 
and the other will take care of itself. Mm. But he changed after his first seven, eight years, and then by his 10th year, they were off to the World Series. That's what I would have expected. Mm. I kind of said the same thing to uh, the women's basketball coach uh, when I met him. I said, you want to hear my Ralph Miller theory? (laughs) And, uh, And he said, well, yeah, because he's he's strong-willed and, and a very uh, 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 mind-setting type of coach, and mm. so uh, he said, "Well, uh, you mean it's going to take me ten years to win?" I said, "No, I'm going to give you credit for your success at, at uh, yeah, George <laughs> at, Fox. Yeah, again, another coach from George Fox. Yeah, and, and Scott turned around pretty yeah, quick. Yes, yeah, 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 and." Uh, and you know, I've always said uh, when people criticize people about something, I said, remember your weaknesses can be your strengths, and your strengths can be your weaknesses. They yeah. they are interchangeable. Mm. And yeah. when you think about it, it's true because somebody that's uh, really cocky and 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 really believes in himself and shows it a little bit, I'd rather tone them down than take the person that's scared and leery and sub and try to bring him up mm. bring him down to where you can control him <laughs> it's a couple last things just because you've been real generous with your time and it's been awesome to, to talk with you jack i've got this this may be funny about about, about your playing career because we haven't talked about your your athletic exploits back in the day mm-hmm. i want to read a quote to you from an oregonian article just a few years ago i mean 60 years ago technically yeah but i'll, I'll read it to you and i'd like your reaction on what okay. this says about you this was your basketball career at linfield class of 1960 mm-hmm. so this article i think was probably from 59 or 60 right around there and it said Jack Riley is a whirling dervish at virtually uncheckable. Riley hawked the ball, passed cleverly, dribbled effectively, played good defense, and most important of all, fired home buckets of points via field goals and free throws, end quote. Yeah, there was uh, a, a start to that because I almost went to Washington State to play baseball and basketball. Mm with a good friend of mine that's in the Hall of Fame in basketball at Oregon right now. Uh, Chuck Rask is is his name, and uh, we almost went to Washington State together, but my my, uh, high school basketball coach uh, was basically my mentor. Mm. And he had told me that, Jack, do you want to be a little fish in a big pond or a big fish in a little pond? And of course, uh, that's how I kind of ended up at Linfield was the 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 big fish in the little pond. <laughs> and yeah, basically, and I told my grandsons, but not not through selfishness and or anything, but I really believed that there were six offensive players out there, and one had an orange coat on it, <laughs> and that was the basket. Mm-hmm. And as small as I was as a player in high school, I was four foot eleven as a freshman, but played on the varsity baseball team. Four foot eleven, 102 pounds. <laughs> and at uh, Linfield, I started in at five seven, and grew to five nine by my senior year. But I wasn't afraid to shoot. Yeah. But I wasn't afraid. I loved the assist, but I, I did. I, I really, I don't know, but I know that there are three records there at Linfield that nobody will ever break, and that's basically most shots in a game, 32, most shots in a season, 500 and some, most shots in a career, almost 2,600. And that's... Uh, 1500 or maybe more than anybody else (laughs) and so uh, but I did average 20 points a game for four years and and led the league in scoring on on three of the years and second my freshman year but yeah it it was a drive it was uh, 
I never, never have drank or smoked. Uh, I was always go to the gym on weekends. I knew the janitors at all the grade schools that I attended, and they'd let me in on weekends and stuff. And so it was just a, a drive, a pretty tough home life. Mm. So it, it was something that uh, that I believed in. But basketball through college was basically, and then. I did play two years of pro ball, and and probably my biggest thrill was when I was teaching at Jefferson High School. We had an assembly, and at that point in time, you know, it was 18% uh, African American, and we had Jackie Robinson when he came in, and I took care of him for two hours. You're kidding. Wow. And we sat around in the coach's room, and that voice, I hear it to this day. If you've ever heard his voice, it's different than anything you've ever heard. And he, the reason I had to take care of him, he was close to blind. He had macular degeneration mm-hmm. really, really bad. Yeah. And so, you know, almost arm in arm, I took him out on the stage, introduced him to the, to the assembly at Jefferson High School, and it, it's still one of the big, big thrills. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jack. Uh, last funny question, not even okay. really, you know, just for fun. I've got a City League softball game tonight that I'm playing in. I haven't hit a home run all season. or la- This is my second season playing City League softball. I really want to hit a home run. So give me your, give me your best coaching. What do, I, what do I need to do? To- what do you do? Where are you playing at? The Pioneer Park over by Avery. Yeah, they got a fence, don't they? Yeah, 275, maybe to dead center, I forget. High fence out there. Well, if you haven't got power, hit a tweener and don't stop running. <laughs> That's my advice. Don't stop running and just hope that the relay throw is uh, is off. Because when I coached, I watched every relay with great attention if it was bobbled, I was not holding anybody up because a bobble is worth one base. Yeah. <laughs> Hit a tweener and run like heck. Well, that was a huge blessing to talk with Jack Riley. Those who know about his story know how instrumental he is and was at Oregon State. Those who don't know as much about him, well, hopefully you got a taste of of what he brought to this community and this athletic department and the baseball program over the course of this episode. By the way, I did play in that City League softball game, and I hit a triple, but not a home run. And uh, if I'd really taken his advice, I should have just sprinted home and hoped that they made the bad throw. I didn't take his advice. Clearly, there's a reason that I didn't play for Oregon State, because he probably would have chewed me out for not going home and following his coaching. So I deserve uh, I deserve some criticism for that. So I'm sorry, Coach, for letting you down. Maybe next time. Real quick before you go, I use this podcast to support charities, give them free advertising. Today, I'm featuring Food for the hungry. They do amazing work all over the world. You can sponsor a child in particular. You can see their story and even write a letter to the kid you're supporting, whatever the country they're in, and see the work that Food for the Hungry is doing and not just putting money in a community, but actually empowering them to use the resources and the abilities they already have there. So please check out Food for the Hungry at fh.org. Again, that's fh.org. Also check out the Beaver Tales documentaries telling the story of the 2018 Beaver baseball team. A little bit of some throwbacks as well in that documentary showing how Oregon State came to be in that position. So I'll talk about Jack Riley, use some of the clips that you heard in this episode to set the stage for what Pat Casey did in his 24 years at Oregon State. So check that out coming out a few months from now. You can sign up on the email list for that uh, link in the description. My greatest appreciation to everyone listening to this podcast. I've been your host, Josh Warden. Good night, everybody, and go Beavs. Go Beavs.